Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston, who just flew to Las Vegas this morning. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, reporters Megan Mesterly and Michelle Rendells and I talk about the first week of the state legislature and what to expect over the next 120 days. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. So yeah, guys, let's get started. Um, I actually wrote in the intro, uh, we have an issue with the audio quality, but that's not going to happen this episode. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, Joey? <laughs> Fingers. One time thing. So the state legislature uh, launched on Monday. Um, this is not our first rodeo. We've been here before. Uh, what, what were your guys' impressions uh, just for the first day of the legislature? It was really snowy. That was my that was my big takeaway. <laughs> um, Did you want a real impression? Yeah. <laughs> Something political. I mean, I kind of thought it was pretty boring, but I'm sure it was a really fun time for all the legislators that were there. And they had their kids running around, and they were taking lots of pictures, and they had bouquets of flowers. So I think I think it's fun for them to hang out with their spouses and kids and uh, get the legislature started off. Yeah, for folks who haven't been to a first day before, it's largely ceremonial. Really nothing happens. They all get sworn in, take their oath of office. They introduce their family members. Uh, there's some bill introductions, but they're all the bills that have been pre-filed. So that means they're they're already in. We, we've been able to read the bill text for weeks, so so no big surprises um, on the first day. And it's been kind of a slow week with, with all the snow. I think that's kind of stalled things a little bit. So Yeah, the snow's been the big story around the Indy House. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've had probably like a foot and a half, would you say? At least a foot, yeah. Looking outside, uh, it was... my car has been buried up to the antlers. <laughs> up to the antlers. For we should probably explain that Michelle purchased a set of reindeer antlers. Actually, Megan, and a nose. you purchased the oh, set I of purchased antlers them? for our really? white elephant. Okay. Well, two Wait, years ago. Two years ago. Now. And Ron, so our uh, freelancer. Um, couldn't take them because she doesn't celebrate Christmas. She celebrates uh, Hanukkah. Oh, so it's my fault. <laughs> and so I ended up with the antlers, and I have decided to keep the antlers on. They're, they're year-round antlers. They're yes. not just Christmas antlers. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, anyway, so we got so much snow that <laughs> Riley and I were digging out the car, you know, one night, and then they were digging out the car again in the morning, and mm-hmm. then we were scraping off the ice and barely got out of the driveway this morning, so... That was an accomplishment. Yeah, it's been an adventure. All the committee hearings have been, or some of them have been delayed in the mornings. and But that's not been a huge problem. Lawmakers have mostly just been uh, sort of getting their intro lessons in their committees about this is what the committee does, this is what the session looks like. Uh, but very, very few bills have been heard so far. Yeah, one of the changes that the Senate approved actually is now you can video conference into a committee hearing. So if you can't make it, if you're snowed in, just Skype in, guys. Like you don't have to go to the building, right? Yeah, better safe than sorry, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Michelle, you were uh, there in the Senate when those rules got adopted. Can you talk about um, some of the changes and kind of what Senate rules are and why those might be important or why people should care about them? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm not as much of a, a envy ledge nerd as you are, so I don't, like, try to read them. That's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but what I can tell you is there were a few changes that were adopted, and these just kind of affect the, you know, the speed of things going through the legislature and certain procedures. So... Some of the changes that got adopted um, was they took out this thing called the Rules Committee. And basically this 
people in 2015, Michael Roberson was the majority leader, Republican Michael Roberson. And uh, he created this thing called the Rules Committee, and they would basically be a, a gatekeeper and prevent people from coming up with these amendments that they could introduce on the floor just before everyone comes to vote. And the idea is that, um, you know, as you know, having been in PolitiFact and kind of covering these campaign ads, uh, sometimes people put forth amendments that are sort of to put people in a box or make them vote against something. Um, I don't know if you have any good examples of this kind of thing, but basically you could just say, you know, here's something where you're going to have to vote against education. We're going to be able to use this in a campaign ad against you going forward. So this rules committee was kind of a a screening mechanism so that people couldn't do that. Um, and then it got kept again in 2017. And uh, Kelvin Atkinson said, I want to get rid of that. So uh, current Senate Majority Leader Atkinson is cutting that process out. So people will be able to come up with these amendments, you know, right before voting should make things a little more interesting. Yeah, the, the example in 2015 that I think spurred this was Democrats who were in the minority that session uh, had like four amendments in a row of like raising the minimum wage by like 75 cents higher every amendment. So they would just bring it up, it would get voted down, they'd bring up the next one to get voted down. So after that, they put it in place. They kept it last session when Democrats were in control because they were afraid Republicans would just offer these you know, for sure, loser amendments, but get people on the record voting. So, And then you could say, yeah, this person voted four times against, you know, raising the minimum wage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, they'd be technically right. But. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah, it's just sort of gamesmanship. So I think it does show like a Senator Atkinson, the majority leader the, who's leading the Democrats in the state Senate, and Senator James Settlemeyer have a much closer relationship and get along better. And I don't think they're going to do that as much. But we're on day um, three of 120. So... It's all downhill from here. (laughs) And the other rule change I want to mention is uh, one that you're required to explain if you abstain from a vote. And basically the idea is that you can't just abstain from a vote because maybe you don't want to take a difficult vote. Um, You have to explain specifically what conflict of interest that you have. And uh, talked with uh, Majority Leader Atkinson after he introduced this rule change. And he said, you know, this is your job. You're elected to take votes, uh, whether they're hard or not. And so you shouldn't be able to do this kind of cop-out thing where you abstain from a vote for no particular good reason. Yeah. Do you remember any good abstentions in our uh, storied, lengthy legislative reporter uh, career? I honestly don't remember them off the top of my head. All I can think of is the um, occasion when the Board of Pardons, um, when this became a story with um, Adam Laxalt trying to abstain on a vote about pardoning uh, a man who had been declared innocent by a court, um, and Governor Sandoval told him he couldn't abstain unless he had a specific conflict. So that's you know an example that doesn't have to do with the legislature, but it was kind of an example of this thing where people may try to try to not vote, but not necessarily out of having a conflict. The the rules changes were interesting because as the big Envy Ledge nerd, I remember there was a big hullabaloo about it last session where people got concerned. And this session, it seems like everyone was just sort of on, on the same page. And I think that's a good segue to kind of our next topic area that we wanted to talk about, which was the relationship between the leaders and the Assembly and the State Senate and how Democrats and Republicans are going to work together in this um, whole brave new world of Democrats trifecta control of the government. So Megan, you and I worked on this story over the weekend about the relationship between legislative leaders. You 
spent some time talking to Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson, who's a Democrat, and uh, Assembly Minority Leader Jim Wheeler, who's a Republican. What's their uh, relationship like and sort of how do they how do they get along and how did they say they plan on working on with each other? Yeah, so the two served on Assembly Judiciary before uh, back when Speaker Frierson was the chair of Judiciary and Assemblyman Wheeler was a member. So they got to know each other working on the committee. They both, you know, kind of told me that they obviously didn't always get along. They're, you know, on opposite sides of the political spectrum. But Assemblyman Wheeler told me that he always felt like Speaker Frierson, then Chair Frierson, you know, always gave him a, a fair shot and was willing to listen to his concerns and take some of that into account. And he told me that's sort of what he's hoping from this session. So his caucus is in the minority. They're they're actually worse than in the minority. Democrats have a two-thirds supermajority in the assembly. So, you know, Democrats don't really need any of their votes, even if there's a two-thirds bill they need to pass on taxes or something of that nature. You know, so he's cognizant of the fact that, you know, he his party doesn't have a lot of power and influence, but he still told me that he's hopeful that, you know, his relationship with Speaker Frierson, you know, will allow members of his party to be able to make some sub- substantive changes, you know, and pass some of their own legislation. On the flip side, Speaker Frierson told me, you know, Democrats having been in sort of the opposite to right now, Democrats have a trifecta. They have they occupy the governor's mansion. They have a supermajority in the assembly, one vote shy of a supermajority in the Senate. Um, but it was uh, the other way in the 2015 session where Republicans were in control. And so, you know, his sort of idea is that Democrats are cognizant of what it was like being in that position they felt like not a lot of their priorities were getting passed. And so he wants to be inclusive. You know, he mentioned to me he has he knows, you know, members in the Republican caucus in the assembly really well, has good relationships with them. He wants them to be able to take something home to their constituents. You know, he he is not going to just kill their bills because they come from Republicans. So he wants to give them a fair shake. The interesting thing, though, and you can talk a little bit more about this, is that uh, Speaker Frierson and Assembly Leader Wheeler are not as close. They, have, they say they have a, or Assemblyman Wheeler told me they have a friendly relationship, uh, but they don't have, you know, sort of as long as a, a personal history as, as Senate Majority Leader Kelvin Atkinson and Senate Minority Leader James Settlemeyer have developed over the years. Yeah. One thing about that that's interesting is that last session, uh, Jim Wheeler, the assemblyman, was kind of like a bomb thrower. Like I remember he brought all of us into his office when it was revealed that Shannon Bilbray Axelrod, the Democratic State Assemblywoman, was a registered agent for Saudi Arabia, and he filed an ethics uh, complaint against her, which I think ruffled a lot of feathers. Um, it ultimately didn't really go anywhere. But I think the speaker, Jason Frierson, had a quote in your in, in our story saying, like, if he wants to throw bombs, he can, but he's going to kind of make himself irrelevant. Do you think he's mm-hmm. just in the first four days tried to, like, thread that needle of trying to be bipartisan and work with him, knowing that they kind of don't have a lot of leverage? Or do you think they're going to end up just throwing a lot of bombs and, you know, yelling at Democrats for the rest of the session? I mean, so far we haven't, you know, we haven't seen any, any bombs, you know, Assembly Minority Leader Wheeler in his speech, I think, tried to, you know, sort of say, you know, we're going to have disagreements, but that's part of the legislative process. You know, he tried to stress that, you know, this is just part of the debate. If we don't debate, we're not making good laws. So, you know, whether that that debate will be viewed as, as bomb throwing, I think that remains to be seen. I, I don't think, you know, we have a sense yet um, of which way it's going to go. I mean, like you mentioned, I think there's an, always a possibility for that happening. And Assembly Minority Leader Wheeler told me that, you know, he and his caucus will reserve the right if Democrats are, you know, passing policies they don't like, they might just call for a caucus. No, um, they're going to reserve their right to do what they need to do to advance their agenda. But, you know, there's some issues where he said they might be able to find 
compromise. One of them is healthcare. He told me that, you know, D Democrats have been talking a lot on the campaign trail about protecting patients with pre-existing conditions. He told me that's something Republicans want too. So we'll see, you know, what looks like, what any legislation on that looks like, if that's something Republicans can be supportive of, if it's just that, or if it includes, you know, other things that might make a yes vote a little bit more complicated. You know, they're also open to working with Democrats on criminal justice reform. So I, I think we'll probably see a mix of both, you know, as, as, you guys know, having covered the session even longer than I have, the beginning of the session starts out sort of kumbaya, and then, you know, by the end, uh, you know, things get heated at the end, like they always do. So I think it remains to be seen sort of which which direction the, the session takes. Yep, it gets heated, but the important thing is that everyone has fun and makes friends along the way. <laughs> um, so yeah, and our, our story that we worked on, I also interviewed uh, Kelvin Atkinson and uh, James Settlemeyer, who are the two leaders of their respective caucuses in the state senate. And they're a really interesting pairing. They've always been sort of interesting to me because they've served on a lot of the same committees that have to do with energy, transportation, infrastructure, that kind of stuff. Senator Atkinson is a African-American LGBT small business owner who has lived in Clark County for most of his adult life. And Senator Settlemeyer is a fourth generation like Nevada rancher who wears a cowboy hat and like always stands up very straight and tall. Yeah, uh, I think that's best exemplified as Kelvin owns a place called the Urban Lounge and and James Settlemeyer literally works on a ranch. Yeah. But somehow they've like struck up this friendship. I don't think it was there initially when they had their first session in 2007, but I think they have been able to get along and they say they're both friends with each other. Uh, Calvin has been to the ranch in Gardnerville. Um, Senator Settlemeyer gave him a pair of cufflinks that belonged to his father um, at the end of the 2015 session. So I talked to both of them this week. There's some areas where I think they're going to overlap quite a bit. I think they both have an interest in making sure electric vehicles pay some sort of uh, fee or registration to the state's highway fund. That's a big thing for both of them. We're going to see what they do on on taxes. Um, obviously, in the Senate, Republicans have that one vote, thanks to Keith Picard, who won by, I think it was 22 votes um, in his state Senate election. So that gave them the one vote they need to avoid the, the Democratic two-thirds supermajority. We'll see kind of what happens. I think Senator Atkinson is in this unique place where he's not as out there on a lot of like the public education issues or as out there on criminal justice reform as Aaron Ford, the former state Senate leader, was. He kind of has his priorities, but he's willing to let other senators in his caucus um, kind of take the ball and run with that. And it'll be interesting because they Senator Settlemeyer has a very different personality and approach to leading the caucus than I think former Senator Michael Roberson um, has. So... That's going to be a fun one to watch, um, and we'll keeping tabs on that as they continue to you know process legislation and move through the the session. The other story I wanted to ask you two about that came out over this weekend had to do with the fact that we have a citizen legislature. They're they're not professionals. Some people would say they're amateurs. Um, so you two both talked to a, a handful of former legislators who talked about some of their their issues with serving in the legislature and trying to keep full time employment. What what were some of those things that came up? Yeah, I thought it was interesting to chat with people who have basically quit the legislature because it became too difficult. And, uh, you know, a couple examples of that, you know, Assemblyman Justin Watkins, he just served one term. Uh, and he said he had brought his family all the way up here from Vegas, moved everybody up, uh, moved two, you know, kids uh, who were in preschool and I think second grade, uh, moved them into a new school so he just did the whole thing. And it, and then he said, he just realized that if for his oldest daughter, 
the move was putting her academically behind. I mean, imagine just uprooting yourself every, every year and a half. We do it, but we're mm-hmm. not in school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. he just thought that's putting her behind her potential. And then they're just breaking, you know, their childhood relationships every time they do this. And yet he didn't feel like he wanted to spend, you know, four plus months totally away from his family at this really crucial time in his girl's life. Um, so he just decided this wasn't for him and he has no plans at this point to run for re-election. Um, and we saw that with Patty Farley as well, who was the uh, Republican turned independent senator. And she also had two school age girls. She moved them up into Carson City Schools. And uh, But as a single mom, it was just really difficult because you've got... You know, you've got to show up to these early morning committee hearings that sometimes start at 8 8 a.m. You know, that's right around the time school's starting. So who's going to take the kids to school? And then you got a meeting that just goes long because there's public comment. And who, you know, what do you do? Just who picks up the kids? Do you have to miss a vote? Uh, And then at night, like, is the babysitter going to stay till 1 or 2 a.m.? Or or your babysitter's got to go to school? You know, so there's just all these issues with, with child care that make it complicated. And she's also a business owner. And so, you know, you got to worry about everything about your business and people calling you for every little issue that's going on. So um, it's really tough when you can't just say, I'm going to be a legislator and this is going to be my only thing. And I'm just going to, you know, dedicate myself to my constituents. You kind of got to juggle all these things because, you know, six months is over. You're not getting paid by the legislature anymore. Yeah. And it's not like they're bringing in six figure salaries, right? Like the, a big part of this is just the fact they don't get paid for even the entire 120 day session, which I think is a lot of, it's really striking to a lot of people. So how much do they actually get paid? Do you guys recall off the top of your heads? It was about 17,000 when you add up kind of the pay, which is about $150 a day. And then they get a per diem kind of living expenses, uh, allowance. Mm -hmm. So it's really not that much. Um, if you're considering you're probably gonna have to forego some career advancement because you have all these other legislative duties going on. Um, and you're sometimes not attractive to employers who want you to be there year round and available at their beck and call. And you're like, I've got to go to an interim committee meeting on Friday. And you know, that's just annoying. I think for a lot of employers to, to let people go just every, every couple days. Yeah. In fact, our coworker, Jackie Valley, actually talked to a high school principal who said that's one of the reasons he hasn't run for the legislature. He has the interest, but, you know, worrying about the salary and he worries about, you know, being gone. What are what are parents going to think? What are teachers going to think to have an absentee principal? You know, how, how do you juggle that? How do you, you know, how do you tell the folks who you're working with that I'm really committed to my job when you're gone for that long? And then the pay is just another another part of that where it's you're missing out on, you know, that amount of salary. Are you able to make that work with, you know, whatever other needs you might have if you're caring for children or other dependents. Yeah. So the idea of the citizen legislature, the, as one of your sources described it, a romantic ideal mm-hmm. of a citizen <laughs> legislature is you got people from all walks of life bringing all sorts of expertise to bear in the legislative process. And then they leave and they have to live, live with what they did. So, you know, it's really of the people. Mm-hmm. But what uh, former assemblyman Justin Watkins said is, then it becomes not really who is the best possible legislator you could get, but it's more like who happens to have the flexibility to swing this. So, you know, someone that might be retired or someone that might have, you know, this law firm that's cool with them uh, being in the legislature. So you got people that, you know, just 
by happenstance are able to do it as opposed to, you know, this person is just a superstar <laughs> and, you know, would, would be great uh, as a chairman of a committee. Uh, so it just kind of happens that way when you got a part-time situation going on. Yeah. I, I think one of the other things we talked about in our story that's difficult about a citizen legislature, again, a plus is that, you know, you you aren't a full-time lawmaker. So, you know, you bring your experiences to the table, but the problem is you're also not a full-time lawmaker. So you just don't have a lot of experience. And one of the things we've seen, you know, get worse in the legislature with time is um, just the lack of institutional knowledge. And some of that was exacerbated by term limits, uh, which went into effect. And now we have a bunch of new lawmakers. We have 17 freshman lawmakers and 16 only second term lawmakers this time. So that's, you know, a significant, you know, concentration of lawmakers who just haven't been around very long. And when you're, you only have 120 days to figure out, you know, an $8.9 billion budget, it's just, you're drinking out of a fire hose. Um, and it's really hard to make good policy decisions when you don't have sort of that, that background and knowledge. You know, a lot of folks will come in with, you know, grand ideas about, you know, well, the bills they kind of want to pass, um, you know, and they, they may come from a good place, but they just haven't had the time to vet the policy or, you know, think things through and do the research. And another thing we pointed out in our article, is just the lack of staff. Um, lawmakers are allowed to, they hire an attache who, you know, helps sort of be the gatekeepers. They, you know, field the lobbyist calls and are there to help them out. But other than that, they're pretty much just relying on, you know, caucus staff and doing their own research and reading bills. It's not like in other states where you have a professional legislature with, you know, each lawmaker has their own staff to rely on to help them craft policy and research policy before they make votes. Yeah, so I think the consequence of that lack of institutional knowledge is it cedes power to other interests. So the governor's office, of course, got all these analysts working on things and, and knows the budget in and out. And you got a lawmaker who doesn't really know what's going mm -hmm. on. So I mean, who has the upper hand in that conversation? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, same thing with lobbyists. You got lobbyists who've been here, you know, 11, 12 sessions. Yeah. Lobbyists who even have been lawmakers themselves and have turned into lobbyists. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If, and then you're just relying on their understanding of mm -hmm. things rather than having all this knowledge and being able to call out mm -hmm. things that are, <laughs> mm -hmm. are not true. So yeah. uh, it puts them at a, a disadvantage when, when lawmakers should really be kind of like an equal counterweight, you know, to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I've noticed on that, I think that become more of a trend as people sort of age out because we are starting to feel like the full effect of term limits. Maggie Carlton and the assembly, David Parks and the Senate are kind of on their way out and they've been there the longest, but I think, at least two, Senator Yovana Kinsella and uh, Assemblyman Steve Yeager were lobbyists before becoming legislators. So I think we might see more of that just so they have like some more experience at, mm -hmm. you know, at part of the process, not actually legislating, but yeah. I'm like... Speaker Jason Frierson, too, was a lobbyist before, so he's he's had some of that background, too, which then helps, because if you look at the list, he's you know technically one of the... He's not one of the younger lawmakers, but he does have fewer terms served compared to some of these other folks. Yeah. The other thing that we brought up in the article was the conflict of interest element. So you've got people with a day job that might pose a potential conflict. Um, and we listed a couple of these examples in our story, but I'm just thinking, you know, the chair of the judiciary is an employee of the district attorney of Clark County. So you've got uh, the district attorney coming before this committee. He's going to weigh in on issues. That's your boss. So, I mean, there's a potential issue. Are you feeling any pressure uh, to support things that he is doing because you're going to go work for him again mm -hmm. at the end of the session. Um, we've got a couple teachers this session. Uh, they're going to get to vote on a budget that includes a 3% pay raise for them and, and 2% uh, merit increases in, 
each of the years. So they're technically, you know, approving their own pay raise. Um, and we've got a lot of folks that are part of the PERS retirement system because they've been public employees or are currently. Um, and they're going to be making decisions about retirement contributions and, and PERS. So there's a lot of um, potential conflicts that mm -hmm. are going to come up. And this is the sort of push and pull of the, the citizen legislature because, I mean, part of the goal of a citizen legislature is that you have people from, you know, broad diversity of backgrounds and professions. I mean, and you think about with the health committees, you know, you have two doctors, one in the Senate, one in the Assembly, sitting on the health committees. And, you know, they bring with them a lot of sort of practical real world, world knowledge. They know what the problems are. You know, they've been in the system, you know, so they have a good idea of sort of what might need to be changed. But at the same time, they're making laws that are going to directly affect their practices in one way or another. So it's this tension between, you know, having this experience and like, you know, we talked about folks not having legislative experience, but they do have career and life experience, you know, so what do they contribute to the legislative process? But then where do you, where do you lose out maybe from those conflicts of interest if those are sort of, you know, weighing on them in one way or another? Yeah. It gets weird when a person works for like a technically an executive branch agency, like if they're a teacher, they're technically a government employee, or the one I'm thinking of is Senator Dallas Harris, who just got appointed, who works for the Public Utilities Commission. So all she does in her everyday life is energy stuff, but she asked not to serve on the uh, Growth and Infrastructure Committee, which deals with energy issues, because that'd be a conflict of interest, because like a bill affecting her employer might come up, and then she would have a say, or she could ask questions or could vote on that. So she took that proactive step. I don't know if everyone necessarily does that, but yeah, it's always like a a hard line to watch and it's hard to say like, all right, well, you might be conflicted on this, but you might know a lot about that issue. So it's a ever present problem and you guys did a really good job on that story. So kudos. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as sort of a, a big wrap up, uh, what, are, what are the big issues that you think are going to come up this session and that, that you guys I think are going to be focusing on um, over the next 117 days? Well, I am really interested in seeing what they end up doing with the criminal justice reform, uh, because here you have Democrats at all levels of government, including the governor's mansion, for the first time in 20 years. And you've just come off this top-down study of the prison system and the drivers of, of what's causing the prison population to go up. You've got a slate of suggestions on the table, 25 recommendations they, they say could save $640 million over 10 years. But you've got like law enforcement and you've got prosecutors that are already out in front and speaking out against these, some of these recommendations. So where are the Democrats going to fall on that? It's a hard thing, I think, for anybody to say I'm, a, I'm against what law enforcement is for. Um, I think even Democrats are going to have a hard time with that. So I think you're going to see some divisions within that Democratic Party on how far anyone's willing to go on that. I mean, are, I don't think Democrats are anywhere close to unanimous on, on ending the death penalty. So what's going to happen with that? And what's going to happen with some tough things like lowering the penalties for burglary, for some types of burglary? When you're in, you know, in Summerlin and, and people are really scared about a spring, you know, a, a spree of burglaries that's happened. Um, so these are kinds of things that I think are gonna gonna come down to the wire, and you know you may have Democrats across the board, but I don't think that really predicts what what we're gonna see out of this. Mm -hmm. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but you know, 
there might be some room for agreement too. I think talking to both Speaker Frierson and Leader Wheeler, you know, they both said kind of like you were saying, you know, we don't agree with everything in that report. That's probably not feasible. Um, but I know even Leader Wheeler was telling me, you know, as far as looking at uh, sort of more discretionary sentencing, like giving the judge more, you know, leeway to determine what the proper sentence is for someone. So it's not, you know, as rigid so that, you know, he or she can take into account the circumstances of the case, you know, so there there aren't these sort of strict sentencing guidelines that are just keeping folks, you know, locked away for years. So I think it'll be interesting to see too, where there's Republican buy-in on some of these issues. It yeah, helps, too, that burglars have a very strong lobbying presence in the legislature. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, even President Trump had his mm-hmm. sentencing reform. Exactly. So I am wondering if that's going to um, change Republican minds mm-hmm. on some of these ideas. They've already been exposed to it through that. Right. Um, if not all through the legislative process in the past. So right. uh, we'll have to see how many Republicans get on board with some of these changes. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I'm interested in seeing is how this read by three thing goes down. Uh, So this year, this year's third graders, if they don't read at grade level, they're going to repeat third grade next year. Mm -hmm. And that is just a huge Mm -hmm. dramatic thing that's going to happen for a lot of kids if something doesn't change. How many kids, again, are at risk? There's 9,000 kids that at this point aren't meeting the standard and there's workarounds. There's different, you could take, you could submit a portfolio instead of taking a standardized test, you know? So there's ways that you could prove your competency and your proficiency aside from the standardized test. But, uh, you know, there's still going to be quite a few kids that I don't think make the cut, um, and are going to be, had to be held back and parents are going to be really, uh, probably upset about that. So Democrats have already said, Steve Sisolak said at Indie Talks, um, that he doesn't think this is going to work in the real world. Democrats last session were uh, pushing back against this. So I'm interested to see how this is going to play out and if they're going to reverse that drop dead mechanism, but still try to keep the millions of dollars of funding that is going to the read by three program to try to get kids up to speed. Mm -hmm. Because I think Democrats like the money part, but um, they're not on board with this retention aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, some of the things I'm interested in, it will shock everyone to learn that I'm interested in healthcare. What? <laughs> I know. No, crazy. <laughs> crazy. Um, no, there's really a lot of interesting healthcare things on, on the plate this session. So one of the big ones, which is not so much. <laughs> that, that was one. Moby the dog. Moby. That was not anyone's stomach, just for, <laughs> for the record. It was a very, I think he snored? No, that was like a sigh. That was like a very heavy. He's kind of sleepy. Yeah. It was like a groan sigh. <laughs> Um, Moby doesn't like me talking about healthcare. Apparently, he wishes Mm-mm. that I would give him more pets and do less reporting <laughs> on healthcare. No, uh, one of the big issues this session is going to be surprise emergency room billing, which you know everyone will remember it came up last session. Has come up in many sessions, you know, for like the last two decades as folks have tried to figure out a solution to this. Um, the, I think the interesting thing with this issue, this issue is that it's not so much partisan. I think folks on both sides of the aisle recognize that, you know, if you're in some sort of tragic accident, let's say you're in a car crash, you're unconscious and you're transported to a hospital, you literally have no say in where you're going. You just wake up in a hospital, you find out, you know, your hospital was out of your insurance company's network and now you have, you know, a bill that's thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of bills or maybe you even end up in an in-network hospital, but the anesthesiologist treating you was out of network and then you have a bill from them. You know, there are a lot of these things that happen and they're just out of the patient's control. They have no say in where they're going. So I think folks on both sides 
sides of the aisle agree that this is, you know, an issue that they would like to see resolved. Um, talking to some of the stakeholders, talking to the hospitals, the doctors, some of the insurance companies, I think the sense is that they're, you know, that they, they want to come to a solution, right? They, they recognize that this is a problem, you know, to, to the big insurance companies, you know, release statements saying, you know, we want to be involved in this conversation. I think the question is where they, you know, ultimately get on this. They've sort of all agreed that they want to take the patient out of the middle, that's what everyone was saying last session. But the question is, how do you do that? Um, and so they're they're getting closer from my conversations to figuring out some sort of rate, some sort of equation that would figure out rates between folks that are out of network. So that means, you know, an insurance provider who hasn't established a contract with a doctor or a hospital, there would be this formula or method of determining how they should get paid in those circumstances. So, it, you know, it would it would help, you know, them figure out what the balance is, how they get paid, um, but you know, ensure that patients wouldn't get, you know, crazy, crazy bills. And part of the proposal that's that's supposed to come forward to the legislature is that patients would only be responsible for their in-network charges. So even if you end up at an out-of-network hospital, you're only responsible for whatever you would have normally been responsible under your insurance plan. So that that piece at least addresses the, you know, taking the patient out of the middle. I thought you had a funny quip the other day about this issue because it was snowing really hard and, you know, we're in Carson and you said, what if I, you know, get sick or something? Are you guys going to take me to Carson Tahoe Hospital because you can't get to Reno? Uh-huh. Carson Tahoe's not yeah, checked, in the network. <laughs> yeah, I checked and they're not in my insurance company's network. So I, I told you guys, if I'm only like minorly injured, can you drive me all the way to Reno so that I don't have to pay an out-of-network This is what John bill. Ralston does to us. <laughs> Please send help if you're listening. <laughs> Um, Megan, one thing that uh, we watched the State of the State address last mm-hmm. night. Um, or State of, of the, the Union. Things, oh, yeah. Sorry. State yeah. of the Union. <laughs> state of uh, the 50 states. Yes. <laughs> Saved it. Um, you know, Trump kind of came down on, mm-hmm. on pharmaceutical pricing. And um, can you update us on, on that issue? And are, you know, are pharmaceutical companies kind of feeling the heat right now? Um, and, and being forced to the negotiating table because not only are they getting some pressure from the state, but mm-hmm. here's Trump coming out mm-hmm. uh, against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that Governor Sisolak actually talked about at our Indie Talks event. You know, he, he was you know, talked about drug pricing on the campaign trail. And, you know, he said that he, uh, he, t- he told us he wants to rein in, you know, pharmaceutical companies. I think the question is, what does that look like? But, you know, he told us that he's hopeful that they're going to come to the table. And I believe his words were, you know, they basically have a target painted on their back. So they, you know, there's more of an impetus for them to come to the table because they know that something is going to get done. So being a part of that conversation is better than, than not being a part of it. Um, you know, last session we saw this diabetes drug pricing transparency bill passed and the state's in the middle of implementing that right now. I think it remains to be seen, you know, what exact what legislation comes forward, whether there's legislation to expand that to other types of drugs, um, if there's increased reporting requirements or if the legislature takes a different tack. Uh, Governor Sislak has mentioned, you know, creating this drug purchasing coalition that would sort of combine the state buying power, you know, so it include Medicaid and PEB, just the, the purchasers of um, of drugs and sort of, you know, combine them together, use their mass to, to negotiate better rates for drug prices. And it seems like there's some willingness to maybe try to include private folks if they're interested in joining this this coalition. So, you know, again, sort of the finer points of that have yet to be hammered out. But I think we'll see that come up this session. Governor Sislax also talked about his patient protection, you know, commission and 
you know, they may come up with some some drug proposals as well. But certainly, I think I think for Republicans and Democrats, like you're mentioning with the, the president last night, you know, it's on the forefront of everyone's mind. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens as far as pharmaceutical companies. And then I think it'll also be interesting to see what lawmakers do with pharmacy benefit managers. So those are the middlemen in the drug pricing process. They basically- the Express scripts. Yeah, right? CVS, Caremark, Optum, Rx. Those are, I mean, most folks don't see them. You don't interact with them, but they're responsible for basically negotiating the rebates between manufacturers and pharmacies and your insurance companies. And so a lot of the questions are, okay, if these entities are negotiating rebates, are those savings get getting passed on to consumers? And that's been a lot of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, they've been turning around and saying, hey, it's not us, it's the PBMs. They're the ones that are, you know, recoup, they're, they're taking all these rebates and not passing them along to the consumers. Um, we saw that come up last session with the diabetes drug transparency bill where PBMs actually got, you know, added into that piece of legislation. So I think it'll be interesting to see to what extent, you know, the focus is on on the pharmaceutical industry versus the PBMs and sort of how that's tackled in a, in a holistic way. You bring up the Patient Protection Commission and you alluded to the Silver State Scripts, mm-hmm. which is Governor Sislak's <laughs> pr- proposal, which brings me to the fact that we have a promise tracker now. <laughs> we do have the Sislak promise tracker on our uh, new website um, where we're tracking all the promises you made during the campaign. And that was one of them to make the Silver State Scripts mm-hmm. uh, program. And also on there is the Patient Protection Program, one of the stuff Megan mentioned in basically everything he said during the campaign trail that we're now tracking and see what he does. So Riley, what promise are you uh, most interested in, in tracking this session? Oh, man, I can't pick one promise. <laughs> There's 35 <laughs> of them. so many of them. So um, each one is equally important. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the energy nerd here at the Nevada Independent, so... I'm very I think curious. there's multiple energy nerds. There are. We have all the energy nerds here. Um, <laughs> I'm not an energy nerd. I will, I will cede that title to you gladly. <laughs> well, you're missing out. Um, so, yeah. Uh, in 2018, Nevada voters approved question six, which would raise the, the renewable portfolio standard to 50, 50% by the year 2030. That measure is going to come up through legislation, how high they go how they measure the renewable portfolio standard, if they like multiply energy things, whether it's energy efficiency or solar, that's all really interesting. Envy Energy is on board with 50% renewable portfolio standard, which is a change from 2017. Um, said during the state of the state, he said minimum 50%. So I think they're gonna try and go higher, but I have no idea where it's gonna end up. There's this whole thing with um, what's called the 704B process, which is this process in state law where if you use a lot of electricity, you can apply to leave Envy Energy's service and buy power on the open market. Envy Energy obviously does not like this very much. They're actually finally starting to push back against this on some of the more recent applicants. There's a bill that Senator Chris Brooks has submitted that I'm very interested in, so we'll see what what happens with that. And and yeah, I'm just, I'm going to be following Gun issues. Uh, Governor Sisolak made a lot of promises about guns. He did this campaign commercial that a lot of people remember where he said we're going to ban assault rifles, silencers, and bump stocks. And he mentioned one of those during the State of the State, but not the other two. Which one was that? Bump stocks. No, which one did he not mention? Uh, Assault weapons and silencers. So there's a lot of, uh, I think he tried to distance himself from Christian Kiliani during the primary, but he obviously went out and made a campaign ad and promised that. So we'll see how far... He goes, and if there's an appetite in the legislature to go that far on gun issues, since they've been kind of uh, cautious to do that in the past. One change that might come up that that he talked about after the shooting uh, in 2017 was the fact that the state has supremacy over gun laws. So if you're Clark County, you can't pass a law saying 
if you have a handgun, you have to get it registered. The state is the one who is in charge of all gun laws in the state of Nevada, which is why it's taken so long to ban bump stocks, because the legislature was out of session from the end of 2017 until now. So that might come up. That was a change that happened in 2015. Um, and we'll... Moby. Moby, Moby has lots of thoughts. He's now trying to contribute to the podcast. Moby's a strong Second Amendment supporter. Uh, he's really concerned about Moby this. is apolitical. He's a nonpartisan uh, dog. <laughs> Riley, you had something interesting in your story, the legislative leaders, uh, that they're going to try to do something basically next week with bump stocks or, or with background checks. Yeah, so that's the other big other big fish to fry is this ballot question that was approved in 2016 that requires background checks on like private party gun sales and transfers that aren't between family members or like your neighbor, if you can still see them. It was approved in 2016 on like a really narrow margin, but it was found to not be enforceable because it requires the FBI to do the background checks. And the FBI said, no, we're not going to do the background checks. A lawsuit came out, didn't really lead anywhere. Nothing has happened on this since 2016, but a lot of Democrats campaigned on making um, this ballot initiative uh, take effect. We don't know. We don't have any legislation in front of us, so we don't know what's gonna the answer is going to be. But my suspicion is that they're just going to have the state pay for it, which will probably cost around three hundred thousand to four hundred thousand dollars per year. But it would fulfill that promise that you know was approved by the voters in this ballot initiative in 2016, even though it was narrow, it was still still approved and it hasn't taken effect. So Senator Atkinson said it's they're going to try and coincide it with the anniversary of the sh- mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, um, as we all remember from last year. So that'll be a, uh, a big thing to watch for next week. And I think they're going to take action and try and get that signed probably as soon as they can, because, you know, if you've been running on that thing for two years, they got they to deliver now that they have all three, uh, or two of the three branches of government. Three of the three. Oh, well, no, they two, don't have the two, judiciary. Yeah, okay. two, two chambers. We have a nonpartisan <laughs> judiciary. Two chambers and the governor. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you guys think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise for this uh, Ralston free edition of Indie Matters, email us at ideas at theenvyindy.com. Remember to check out our site if you haven't already. Uh, and search for us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Remember to rate us and subscribe too. I want to thank Michelle and Megan for being here and chit-chatting about the legislature. A special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato. Joey Lovato. Joey Lovato. <laughs> who uh, will not screw up the audio recording of this episode. And he makes a sound. Podcast, Podcast smooth. smooth. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay, I want to keep talking just so you have to cut this part out and, and post. You'll we'll actually have bloopers again. Yeah, bloopers. Yeah. Finally, the fans have been demanding the bloopers. Uh, <laughs>